All right, good morning, familia. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez, and I want to welcome you all, those of you that are worshiping here with us in person, those of you worshiping with us online. As always, we are grateful that you got, that you chose Wheaton Bible Church to be the place where you worship today. Uh, and we, today we continue with our series that we started a few weeks ago based on the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and today, um, it, the chapter we read is about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And the theme that I want to talk about today, pay attention to today, is the theme of satisfaction. And these are my three points for today. We're going to talk about the search of satisfaction, the path to satisfaction, and the source of satisfaction. The search, the path, and the source. I need you to do me a favor uh, and repeat this statement after me to the person that is next to you. We are satisfaction-driven people. Go ahead, go ahead. Wow, that was amazing. First time ever. Um, let's go with the first point, the search of satisfaction or the search for satisfaction. I later thought that that would be a probably better, better way to say it. Um, and as you, if you were paying attention to the text, somebody might, might be asking the question, why satisfaction? Like, where is Hannibal talking about? Why is that the topic today? You know, that word is not mentioned anywhere in the 17 verses that we have here. So why would Hannibal dare to talk about this thing if it's not in the text? Well, I want to make the argument that the most important verse in this text, in chapter 3, is the very last verse. I actually think that everything has to do with that very last verse. In verse 17, Jesus is about to get baptized, and a voice from heaven says the text, from the Father says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now, the word pleased in the, in the original can be translated in different ways. It can be translated as delight, pleasure, joy, happiness, or satisfaction. This is God saying about his son that in his son he finds delight, he finds pleasure, he finds joy, and he finds satisfaction. So in the context of the text, we are seeing Jesus after 18 years of silence, if you will. So the last thing that we know about Jesus, he was about age 12. And the first time he appears again in the text is, is at age 30, which is right at the beginning of his ministry. And the first thing God the Father says about him is that he delights in him. That in Jesus there's pleasure, joy, happiness, and satisfaction. Now, this is not the first time God, sat, God, God has said something like that. Actually, in the whole Gospel of Matthew, this phrase appears two, another two times. It appears in Matthew chapter 12, uh, which is quoting Isaiah chapter 42, in which Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus, and this is what Isaiah says. Here is my servant whom, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, and I'll put my spirit on him. Listen up. And he will bring justice to the nations. Same expression with an addition to it. In Matthew chapter 17, we got the narrative of the event of the transfiguration in which Jesus goes to, an up, to a high mountain with his three disciples. And then Moses and Elijah appear. Moses representing the law in the Old Testament. And Elijah representing the prophets in the Old Testament. And out of a sudden, those two guys disappear and only Jesus is present. And then God says this. 
This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And that in itself is significant because he tells us, that event alone tells us that all the law in the, in the Old Testament and all the prophets in the Old Testament were pointing to Jesus. Those things disappear, and now we have Jesus. Therefore, listen to him. What I want you to see here, though, is that God finds delight in Jesus because it is through Jesus that God will make things right. Justice. And that if we find in Jesus the same thing that the Father finds in Jesus, we ought to experience the same thing that the Father experienced with Jesus. Delight, pleasure, joy, happiness, satisfaction. See, I truly believe that all of us are satisfaction-driven people. And the reality is that if we don't find satisfaction in Jesus Christ, you will seek for satisfaction somewhere else. We are by design people that cannot live without satisfaction. Either we find it in him or we're going to find it somewhere else. Let me prove my point. Isn't that the reason why you got married? If you're married. Now, if you are Honest, you know that that satisfaction lasted like a few months. <laughs> right? Because you realize that the person you marry was not the same person that you met before. That's normal. See, you thought that you would find satisfaction in your kids. But as soon as you have your kid, two weeks after, you realize that that was probably not a good idea. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> See, you thought that you will find satisfaction in your career. But you know that that is not true. Your career is not as satisfying as you think it is. You thought that you were going to find satisfaction in your looks by gaining weight or losing weight or fixing yourself or doing whatever. And the reality is that you're still looking for, you still haven't found what you're looking for, says Bono. See, we are satisfaction-driven people. All the younger people are like, Bono, who is that? <laughs> See, my conviction is that the Bible shows that we cannot do without satisfaction. Actually, our society is divided into two, these, into two, these, two different groups. The ones that know that we can do without satisfaction and the ones that already gave up in life because they couldn't find satisfaction. Our society is divided just like that. Listen, if you are in the camp that you know that you cannot do without satisfaction, if, you, if that satisfaction is not in Jesus, as I said before, you are looking for that somewhere else. The tendency for that group is to be extremely optimistic, you know? Well, I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. And the tendency is to live in that here and now. You know what the problem is? That everything that you live for in the here and now gives you satisfaction for a short period of time. Because eventually, everything fades away. Once again, you can look for that in marriage. You can look that for in your kids, in career, your looks, your friends, your relationships. But you know that that satisfaction has limited time. So what happens? When that fails, you go and look for another person, another place, another job, another house, another car, just for those satisfactions also to go away. And the way I describe this, this is almost like living life with a treadmill, treadmill mentality. 
You run, you run, you run, you run, you run, you never arrive, and you are always exhausted. Because you haven't found what you're looking for. An even greater problem with this is that even in relationships, we tend to use people as a means to an end. Consciously or unconsciously, we like to treat people to fulfill our desires and satisfactions and, dis- and delights. You know what the problem is? Is that we're treating people like if they could give you what only God can give you. You know what the problem is with that? That people are projects, not people. On the other hand, the other group is completely disillusioned because they've tried uh, and they haven't, find, they haven't found that satisfaction just yet. So the tendency for this group is to lower the expectations in life, creates a heart of cynicism, and detach themselves from anything that is worthy. The problem with this group is that they, they have no hope, no reason to live for, and they are ignoring that we do need to satisfy our desires, our delight, our satisfactions. This, I think this is part of the reason why C.S. Lewis says that, we, that Christianity is a better option. This is what he says in his book, Mere Christianity. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So he's actually explaining that part of the reason why we have these desires that we want to satisfy is because there's something that says that there's something that must satisfy those desires. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desires. Well, there is such a thing as sex. He says this, if I find in myself a desire with no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That means that Christianity, in his head, has what we're looking for. That's the third option. See, I actually think that Christianity offers the perfect balance. See, Christianity tells you that you're a broken person living in a broken world. Therefore, you can expect that you will never find satisfaction in this place. You don't have permission to be all positive about life all the time. But at the same time, he tells you that you should pursue to satisfy, uh, satisfy your desires or your heart or find delight and contentment and joy because we were created for it. The difference, though, is that he tells you that you can only find that in Jesus, that nothing created in this world can give you what you're looking for just Jesus. In Jesus, we find the same thing that the Father found. True delight, true pleasure, true joy, true happiness, and true satisfaction. Have you ever wondered why is it, Jesus, why is it that Jesus says, I am the bread of life? I fulfill your desires. You're hungry for something. I fulfill whatever you're hungry for. See, you can, you can live without this. I cannot live without this. We are satisfaction-driven people. We just look for it in the wrong places. And God says in the Gospel of Matthew, find it in the person of Jesus. 
That, that's point one. Someone may ask, okay, how do I do that? Well, that leads to point number two. Let's talk about the path of satisfaction. I want to make the argument that it's not enough for you just to know that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to make the argument that you need much more than that. I think that the Gospel of Matthew makes the argument that one of the ways in, uh, in order for you to find this satisfaction, to find Jesus delightful, pleasure, joy, happiness, starts by recognizing that you are sinful, that I am sinful, that we are all sinful. See, this is the dynamic of sin in our hearts. Sin is like a heavy load that slows you down. So if you have something in your heart, that thing feels like a heavy load. It doesn't matter how much you pretend that it's not there. It doesn't matter how much you try, that it's not, uh, try to do something to pretend that it's not there. At the end of the day, it still feels heavy. This is part of the problem with our society. They feel it, they sense it, and they're trying to find another way besides Jesus to get rid of that problem. That's why I think that the Bible, when it talks about uh, uh, forgiveness is as almost like a, like a synonym of freedom. And this is why in this text we find the word repent so many different times. See, you guys remember, let me, let me set it up like this. You guys remember in Matthew chapter 19, there's the story about this paralytic. And this man and his friends, they think that what he needs the most is to fix his physical condition. See, he thinks that the solution for all his struggles is that he recovers the, the healthiness of his body. So they take him to Jesus, and Jesus that can read and sense what is inside his heart. Instead of giving him physical healing, he says this, Take heart, you my son, your sins are forgiven. Now think about that for a second. If you are your entire life as a paralytic, and you hear that this guy could heal you, and you go to this person, and the person says, by the way, you need your sins to be forgiven. How would you feel about that? This is not what I was looking for. See, but Jesus knows that recognizing that we are sinful and that we need forgiveness is the primary healing we need. There is no delight there is no pleasure, there is no joy, there is no happiness, there is no satisfaction unless you get rid of that little thing inside your heart called sin. This is part of the reason why John the Baptist and Jesus started their ministries with this phrase in verse 2. In verse two Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near repent. See, the word repent, repent in the Bible is translated in so many different ways. And it's usually the same definition in all of them. It means to change one's mind. It's to change the attitude of your heart toward God, toward others, and toward yourselves. It's about thinking, turning, and living in a different way that gives glory to God. That's why the text makes the case that we are called to confess our sins. So people are going to John to get baptized, and look what it says in verse 6. People were confessing their sins. They were, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. I'm going to talk about baptism later on. 
For now, I want you to pay attention to the word, to the phrase, confessing your sins. Listen, if you have been a Christian or you have been part of the church or even if you have explored Christianity and have visited more than one church, you know that the word repent is a common word. Like I guarantee you that everyone here, 99% of you have heard at least one sermon about repentance. Amen? How many of you guys? All right, let me ask another question. How many of you guys know what repentance means? Like truly repentance means? Okay, so let me skip this point. Let's go to point number three. No. Uh, yeah, yeah, you thought, hey, we're going to finish early. I don't think so. <laughs> I want to try to convince you that as much as we understand what repentance looks like, sometimes we don't know what that looks like. Notice that he talks about the confessions of sins. Therefore, repentance, listen up, church, repentance is not about feeling bad. Because you got caught. Because it is possible to feel bad because you got caught, but not because you hate your sin. Can you see the difference? See, repentance is not about feeling bad because you have done something wrong. It's not just about that. Because it is possible for us to sin and not feel bad. Let me prove my point. If you're honest with yourself, you know that you sin because you like what you sin give you or gives you. You know that when you sin, many times you sin because you really like what you sin gives you. So that's why, if, for example, someone has committed adultery. I've never heard of a person that committed adultery. And right after they do their thing, they go like, what just happened? How did we get here? Nobody says that. Because it was a conscious decision from beginning to end. Nobody makes that. Nobody sins just saying, oh, what just happened? There are sins that come from your heart that you didn't know you had. But most of our sins are actually conscious decisions. So I want to make the argument that sometimes when you sin, you don't feel bad. Therefore, repentance has to be much more than that. Let me keep going. Repentance is not about feeling sorry for the consequences of your sin. It has to be more than that. Because it is possible to feel sorry for the consequence of your sin, but not for the sin itself. See, if that is not repentance, then let me give you my description of what repenting is according to the Scripture. Repenting is about confessing your sins. It's about recognizing that what I have done is wrong because the Bible says it's wrong. And because God says it's wrong. Whether I feel it or not. There's a song that says, how could it feel so wrong? How could it feel so right to do this wrong thing? Because it doesn't matter at the end of the day what you feel or not. If the Bible says it's wrong, it is wrong. 
Repenting is about recognizing and confessing that we have done wrong, that all of our wrong is our, our offenses against a holy, pure, good, and merciful God, whether you feel it or not. Repenting is about confessing our sins because of what our sin is and what our sin represents, whether you feel it or not. Repent is about recognizing that we are broken and we need to humble ourselves before a holy God. See, that was the problem with religious people in the New Testament. Actually, you're going to see in the text that there's a difference between the religious people of Jesus' time and John the Baptist. The difference is so clear. The religious people did not think that they needed Jesus. So, for example, in verse 7, they're coming to John when he's baptizing people. He sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and this is what he says. But when he saw John, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brutal vipers. Now, I don't know about you, but you want to get baptized, and then someone says that. That's a Debbie Downer, people. <laughs> you brutal vipers, you snakes who warn you to flee from the coming wrath. You know what that means, right? Who made you think that if you, if you get baptized by me, you're not going to go to hell? <laughs> you know what their problem was? The Pharisees, by name, means that they were separated from God. They thought that they were superior because God chose them. The Sadducees came from the high priest of the Old Testament. They thought that they were people of pedigree. So when they come for baptism, the attitude of their heart is not humility, it's not brokenness, it's not confession. It's just religion. Your religion doesn't save you. Only Jesus saves you. Actually, John is not going to let it go. And in verse 8, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That is also harsh. It's almost like saying you do everything right. You go to church, you tithe, you serve, you read your Bible, you do, what, you do all the religious stuff that you got to do. But if your life does not align with your convictions, you don't have fruit of repentance. He's going to go after them one more time. Since these people thought that they were people of pedigree, he says in verse 9, and do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God could, can raise up children for Abraham. You know, that would be the equivalent of name dropping, you know? When you want people to respect you and you say, well, I know so and so. These people, we use that with Abraham. How dare you tell me that? I come from Abraham. And he says, my translation, who cares what your family is? Who, you, who, who your family is? What cares is that you repent for real. That you recognize that you're a sinner in need of grace. That you are broken. That you humble yourself before a mighty God. John the Baptist, on the other hand, shows something completely different. See, John understood that he was preparing the way for Jesus. Even his baptism was in preparation for Jesus' baptism. And even before Jesus arrives there, this is how he describes 
how he sees himself before Jesus in verse 11. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. If you know anything about first century uh, church, first century people, you know, you would know that touching the sandals, touching the sandals was unheard of for anybody except one group of people, the slaves. So if you wanted to humiliate someone, you would tell them, please carry my sandals. And John the Baptist, seeing who Jesus is, says, I don't even deserve to carry Jesus' sandals. There is no delight, pleasure, joy, happiness, or satisfaction without first recognizing that we are sinful people in need of freedom, in need of forgiveness. And there is no forgiveness unless there is repentance and confession of sins. This is why repentance for believers is a lifestyle. Our life is a life of repentance. And if you have the Holy Spirit, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will point all the sins you have to lead, uh, lead you and drive you to repentance. There's a hint of that in verse 11 when John talks about Jesus and he says that Jesus will send, will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire. He says that Christians will be, uh, will be, that the Holy Spirit will dwell inside of us, but the word fire there means that the Holy Spirit would also purify us. But there is no purification unless there's confessions of sins. Listen up, church. If you are the church, if you are Christians, your life is a life of repentance. And if you have nothing to repent of, you are, needing, you are not digging deep enough. You don't know who you are just yet. One of our staff members, one of our family members here at the church, her name is Melissa Duncan. She participated in that video that we were doing for repentance. And she's got this beautiful illustration. Uh, I found it beautiful about the necessity and the beauty of repentance. I want you to look at this video really quick. So my husband and I lived overseas, and we lived in this really remote area. We had to draw our own water. So the way we would clean ourselves was by, like, pouring water uh, from, from a pot this size over our heads, over our bodies, and just scrubbing the best that we could. And uh, I would get clean, but still, like, my hair would be full of sand. But, you know, I, I bathed. I was clean. And then we would go once a month into the regional uh, the biggest city regionally near us and we would stay with friends and they had running water that was like, you could get it for like four minutes of an actual shower. And so we would shower and actually have running water and be like, I can't believe I thought I was clean before. Like all this sand just like coming off of us and we just felt so clean. But then we would go like every six months into the capital city and stay in a hotel that was like a real, had the fancy soaps, it had hot water, and you could just shower for as long as it took and just really like 
wash your hair. And I remember the water would just be like reddish tinted because it was just, we lived in an area that was red sand. And as it like came out of my hair and I stepped out of there and would just be like, I can't believe I ever thought I was clean before this moment. I have never been clean before this moment. <laughs> and that's kind of like what our, what our, what our walk is with Jesus. As I get closer to Jesus, as I mature as a believer, there are going to be new things that I'm going to need to repent from, but I'm going to be continually led into these new, new areas to develop and grow as I'm walking with the Lord, as I'm being discipled. And I think that that's just kind of an analogy for repentance and this ongoing state of repentance that we kind of live in. It's not just once and then done. It's ongoing and it's part of the relationship that we're in. God loves you so much that he cannot leave you as you are. So you should feel contentment and staying as you are. Repentance is a lifestyle. To not repent is taking your freedom away. Now let me give you one minute about baptism before I move to my third point. Because the word baptism appears three times in the text. And when the Bible talks about baptism, it talks about baptism being a sign and a seal. It is a sign because it is a person uh, doing this public celebration because the person has believed and repented of, of his or her sins, and it's an external celebration of an eternal transformation. That would be kind of the description of a sign. It's also a sign because it reminds us that that person died and resurrected with Jesus, that that person is in union with Jesus. It is also a sign because it reminds us to the rest of us that are witnessing this baptism that we are also united with Jesus. But here's the thing. Because it is also a seal, baptism has an important role in our spiritual walk. It, confer it, co it confirms and it, gives you, and it gives us strength. Right at the beginning of our journey. Why do I say that? Because in modern-day Christianity, a lot of people think that they can be Christians without being, being baptized. Listen, you can be a Christian without being baptized. But the Bible knows nothing about someone that repented and did not get baptized. And if that's your case, I want to appeal to you because you are missing something in your spiritual walk with the Lord. You're missing something that is highly spiritual, the confirmation and the strength that comes only from this super hyper-charged spiritual thing called baptism. So if that's you, I want you to consider that. So, so far we have talked about, I, I have argued that we are all uh, satisfaction-driven people and that we can only find that satisfaction in Jesus. I also made the argument that the only way we, get, we, we start to experience that satisfaction is when we confess our sins and repent. And now I want to make a third argument. And that believing in Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, and believing that Jesus is God is not enough unless you understand and learn to see who you are in Jesus and what Jesus did for you. Meaning, seeing Jesus as a Savior. Point number three, 
the source of satisfaction. Something weird happens in the text because Jesus comes to get baptized by John. But baptism is for sinful people. Only sinful people needs baptism. Only sinful people need their sins to be washed away. So why would Jesus get baptized? Well, he answers the question in verse 15. He says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill our righteousness. Now, I have to move a little quicker, but this is the gist of it. There, there, the, uh, Matthew is quoting Isaiah 53, in which he says that Jesus died for our iniquities to justify us, to make us righteous people. And Jesus is doing this to identify with his people as a substitute of his people. This image right here of the baptism was preparing the way for the cross in which Jesus once again would identify with his people, take the place of his people, take the wrath of God, and then once people have placed their faith in him, they will be declared righteous, forgiven, accepted, loved, adopted. I want to make the argument that unless you truly believe that, who you are in Jesus, how God the Father sees you in Jesus, unless you have that, you're going to struggle with satisfaction. You know that verse 17 when it says, this is my son whom I, whom I love and whom I am well pleased? That verse applies to you if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Regardless of what you have done. If you are in Jesus, the Father sees you and says, this is my son or daughter in whom, in whom I love and in him or her I am well pleased. If you don't understand that, I want to share with you a story. And it's a little long, so bear with me. This is a story that um, Steve Brown, which is a theologian, Bible teacher, and author, wrote years ago. I read it once and I've never forgotten it. So let me tell you the beginning of the story, and then I'll read the other part. He writes about this king that was a really good king and had a beautiful kingdom. He was a king that knew how to use his power for the sake of his people. He was a king that was benevolent and full of wisdom and peace. His kingdom was a kingdom of peace. And everyone in the kingdom loved him. And everyone in the kingdom respected him, and everyone in the kingdom wanted to follow him. One day, this king has a son. And this son fulfills all the desires of his king, of his father. And he enjoys to spend time with his son. And every day, it didn't matter how complicated uh, his day was, um, he would look forward to coming home and spending time with him. And now I read. The king loved his son more than his own life. His greatest joy was to spend time with him. One day, the king's sons got lost. It was one of the most tragic days that he had ever, that had ever passed in his kingdom. He didn't mean to get lost, the son. He loved his father as much as, he loved his, as much as his father loved him. When the boy got lost, nothing looked familiar. At first, he was calm because his father would come soon and find him. But as he waited, he began to panic. In his confusion, he began to run away from the castle. Eventually, the little boy wandered into one of the villages of the kingdom. To be perf- perfectly honest, by, the time he looked, by that time, he looked more like a beggar than a prince. The little boy would go up behind someone, grab his coat, 
pull it down and said, Mr., Mr., I am the king's son. Would you help me get home? To which people would respond, sure you are, kid. And he would say, no, 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 you don't understand. I got lost and I can't find my father. Hours blended into days, days into weeks, weeks into months, and months into years. The little boy was no longer a little boy. He had grown into a strong young man. The problem, though, is that the kid started to hang around with the wrong people. And as years passed, he forgot about the castle and about his heritage. And it didn't take so many years to forget about the dream altogether. He killed people. He started to steal. He raped people. Nothing was beneath him. Eventually, the young man became a leader of the gang and surpassed all his friends in his evilness. Years after he, had left, he, after he had left the castle and his father, the king's son, had become the most wanted criminal in the kingdom. Then one day, through a rather complicated set of circumstances, the king found out that his own son was the kingdom's most wanted criminal. At first, he couldn't believe it, but the more he checked, the more it became clear that he had found his beloved son. And when the authorities finally found him, the king faced a terrible dilemma. The king loved his son, but he was also fair and just. He knew that if he would release his own son who had committed terrible crimes, he would need to release all the others who had committed crimes. And that was unacceptable. And so the king's son was arrested and brought before the judge who condemned him to be executed for his crimes. The verdict was just. The king's son was thrown into a dungeon, into a, into a dungeon beneath the castle to wait for his execution. And the night before the young man was to die, the king made his way into the prison beneath the castle. Opening his son's cell, he walked in and sat on a bunk across from his son. The king sat there a long time looking at his son before he spoke. And he said, you are my son. And the king responds, yeah, someone told me. And then the king says, have you ever wondered over these years about your parents? To which the kid responds, sometimes, but I had a good life. It wasn't that important. Well, I have never stopped wondering about you. Where you were and what had become of you, I have never, you have never been out of my mind and heart, the king said. So the king continued, his voice trembling with emotion, and tears down, uh, running down his face. My son, I loved you with great love, but you became lost. I did everything I knew to do. I sent out my, I sent out my soldiers. I offer a great reward. I have never ceased to search for you, but now it has come to this point, and tomorrow you must die. But son, I have decided to allow you to go free. With those words, the old king got up and walked out of his son's cell into the crisp night air. The young man went up, went over to the cell door, and tested it. Well, what do you know? He said. The old man left it open. The king's sons grabbed his coat, threw it over his shoulder, and with a cynical smile, spoke aloud and said, That is stupid old man. He thinks, that, he thinks that because he has set me free, I will come back to this castle and be his assistant. Well, he's more confused than what I thought. And with that, the young man ran the stairs and disappeared. 
Some two weeks later, the king's son found out what price his freedom had cost. And the date of his scheduled execution, the requirements of the law has been met. It was his own father that had taken his place before the next morning and had literally died so that his beloved child might be free. And then Steve Brown asks this question. You probably have questions about what is it that the son did. Did he return to the castle and become a king? Did he even care about the price his father had paid for his freedom? Did he decide to obey the law? And he leaves that story unfinished. You know why? Because you're the son. And I'm the son. What are you going to do with that? Stop fighting. Stop fighting the true satisfaction that is found only in Jesus. Believe, repent, and continue to repent. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you are the great king. The king that is willing to surrender his life for the sake of his ungrateful kids. But we are also grateful, Lord, because because of that love, Lord, we can respond to you. Lord, we really want to find satisfaction only in Jesus and what he did for us and who we are to him. Lord, I pray that by, by the power of your spirit, you continue to give us the gift of repentance to surrender to you time and time again until you take us home. But please, Lord, do not allow that we ever forget who our Jesus is, what our Jesus do, did, and who we are in him. That when you look at us through him, you actually say, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Lord, that that reality goes from our head to our hearts, to our affections, to the point that it affects our will. And we pray for all of this in Jesus, and we all say,